0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, Hi, this is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and I'm your host at The Visual Workplace. The Visual Workplace, our weekly radio show where we explore and celebrate the principles and practices, concepts and tools, methods and strategies, people and results of implementing, of learning about and implementing workplace visuality, letting the workplace speak. Letting the workplace speak in a language that we have embedded in that workplace so that workplace is capable, is enabled, is capable of helping us in our work so that we work more safely, we do the right thing at the right time, we do it at the right speed, we do it at the highest possible quality, quality that is built in, and we do it so that we are moving the process along and moving the intelligence of the operations along in the direction of our chosen horizon, which is excellence. That's the chosen horizon, excellence, operational excellence. In each of these shows, in each of my shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed that intelligence into the landscape of work through visuality, through visual devices, visual systems. Why? So we can reap the enormous benefits of doing so. We can reap it in terms of the bottom line, the money we put in the bank and stays there, our margin, our profit margin. And in terms of the cultural alignment, that is the inevitable outcome of embedding a language of operations, the kind of alignment, the kind of transformation, the kind of unity that is possible because we are partners in the production process. Whether that production process is in a factory, in a hospital, operationally speaking, in a bank an offices engineering department purchasing marketing wherever work is done whatever that work is visuality can help us can help us with that work and help us enjoy ourselves help us go to work and know that the struggle has been minimized if not completely disappeared we can work we can flow so we interview master practitioners, although I know I haven't been doing that lately. I've been doing a lot of pre-records. That means I record the show in advance, and this is one of them, because I'm traveling. Something has popped with the visual workplace. Maybe it's been this show, but people are knocking on the door, and we are able to bring the knowledge more deeply into industry through these wonderful laboratory sites we call our implementation not to say that we are flaky when we arrive and we're learning how to do it, but in fact, every time we do an implementation, we learn something more about how visuality works. It's a language that, in a sense, has been discovered. I've had the honor and pleasure of discovering the principles of that language over the last 30 years. and The principles govern, they're kind of like the syntax. How do you use the language and how do you write a careful operational procedures with it but visually speaking and how do you become poetic and write really works of art on the face of the production floor how do people express themselves you know see if I can reach my book Ah, I can't I'll read you from my uh, from my uh, 2005 book called Visual Workplace Visual Thinking, I have this opening poem. I might have read it for you before, and I really should read this in a Welsh accent or a Yorkshire accent or something really very, very romantic and very English. But this is written by um, a priest. His name is Gerard Manley Hopkins. I'm pretty sure he was either Scottish or Welsh, but he had an incredible ability. To talk about this internal state in, ter- in ways that were highly poetic, and I wrote this. Um, I included his poem in the face of my, in the face page of my book, Visual Workplace, Visual Thinking. First, the book is dedicated to the millions of value add employees who contribute their lives, their work lives, to companies around the world, and who want to do ma- work that makes sense. And then, five years later, um, last year, I wrote the Work That Makes Sense book. So here's his poem, it's called As Kingfishers Catch Fire, and it really has to do with the eye that I've talked about so much. So so hear this with a lovely English accent. As Kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame, as tumbled over rim and roundy wells stones ring, like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Deals out that being indoors each one dwells. Selves goes itself. Myself it speaks in spells. Crying what I do is me. For that I came. I'll repeat that. Just the last line. Selves goes itself. Myself it speaks in spells. Crying what I do is me. For that I came. This struck me like a ton of bricks when I heard it probably 20 years ago, spoken from the mouth of a great Yorkshire poet whose name is David White. You may know his work. Quite, quite extraordinary. And he integrated so many other poets into his presentations. So we got the, the, the music of, of these very, very powerful, um, thoughts, these powerful principles. And that for me is the principle of the eye. We come to work to express ourselves. That's why I'm inviting you to think about visuality as a language, because if you do, you'll understand it is expression, it is self expression. Yes, it serves the corporate intent. Of course, it does. But I want you to move as far away as possible from the very limited idea that workplace visuality is about a bunch of visual devices, an array of visual devices that maybe you saw in another company or you saw in a book and see it instead as expression. You know, I talk about it initially as the answers to information deficits, but it is far more than thinking about it as abnormality, normality. You may have to train your eyesight to see that, and it's a wonderful moment when you begin to see what isn't there. You begin to see an abnormality and see the opportunity for a normality to take its place. This is the language of the lean guys and women who teach lean, but it's limited. And by the way, that language was used in the supply chain, the language that used that was used in the Toyota supply chain, the the language that was used inside Toyota had a business bend to it but you could hear poetry in it as well these are parts of our being to become balanced humans to become balanced contributors at work we must recognize these other components of ourselves and so that's why i'm saying enjoy ourselves along the way when we put visuality in place so we can go to work and we can feel the steep flow so it doesn't matter what you make you'll need visuality to make it right At the least cost, the most safety, the highest quality, the least distance, all this is built in. Or if it isn't built in, visuality will give you an opportunity to build that in, to see, to see, to deeply, deeply penetrate your production system so you can see the production profile. Whether it's low volume, high complexity or high volume, low mix, it doesn't matter. It is language embedded to support and to express your operational system. Okay? So today we'll continue our discussion aha of doorway 4 visual leadership we are unnesting that and we've discovered that it has three components visual metrics which we talked about a few shows again uh, ago visual problem solving which we talked about in the last doorway 4 show and which I'm continuing today and then visual leadership the deployment part the hoshin part the true executive um, um, piece of visual leadership. But executives own all of Doorway 4. And I've said this before. It really does matter which methodologies you bring in to drive improvement in your organization. They need to be vetted and understood. You need to look for the principles. That's why the Shingo Prize is so valuable to give us a profile of principles to help us make these executive decisions. Don't turn this over to your improvement uh, team if you're an executive. Make sure that you understand because what you're bringing in, you understand the methodologies. What you're bringing into your enterprise is a way to move forward. This is like changing your diet. You know, going from... McDonald's diet, let's just say, let's be gross and do an extreme, to maybe raw vegan, another extreme. But somewhere in the middle is you and me. Somewhere in the middle, there we are. Okay, and we think about these things. We've become more conscious, haven't we? We've become more conscious over the last 15, 10, 5, 30 years about what we put in our body. And so as an executive, you become more conscious about what you put into the enterprise because what you're doing is grooming the thinking. You're igniting the thinking. You're grooming it. And so these import- these decisions are important. You own all of doorway number four. You own the metrics. You look for metrics that monitor because you need them quickly. That's your data for tracking performance. But you insist upon metrics that drive what I call visual metrics. Drive us down the causal chain. We'll be touching on that again. You insist upon that one per area and you say to your plant, I want you to experiment and figure out how to make metrics that drive work. We're going to begin in one department. I don't want this all done overnight. This isn't a rodeo. We don't have to stay on the horse for thirty seven seconds if we're lucky. This is for the long ride. We have to ride the pony. We have to we have to ride the bull. Okay. So we're going to be talking about doorway number four. We're going to look at visual problem solving, the second piece. In the last show of um, visual problem solving, I talked about, well, I'm going to review that. Let's go into a break, and then I'll be able to start fresh and kind of set this up so we can move through it. Thanks very much. I'll see you in a minute.
0: Always talking business, talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website, again, is visualworkplace.com. If you are looking for both an inside and insightful look at what you're not seeing in media coverage of today's legal, business, and policy battles, Tune into In the Court of Public Opinion with host Jim Haggerty. What happens in the public arena affects us all. Whether you're following the latest high-profile court case, corporate crisis, or are just interested in government and policy, be sure to tune in every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. The witnesses are ready and the jury seated. So join us for our next session in the Court of Public Opinion. in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program.
1: Hi, it's Gwendolyn again, and here we are at the Visual Workplace. Today, we are continuing our discussion of Doorway 4, Visual Problem Solving. We're doing the second piece of that. I was saying before the break, Doorway 4 contains all the subtlety and power of great leadership. Yet in visuality, this leadership is anchored in the use of tangible, physical things, formats, that render the subtlety and the power visible, accessible, touchable, real, operational. You can operationalize power. Not conceptual, even though visual principles rule this part of the paradigm as completely as others. We are implementing principles, but we're doing it tangibly, physically, through devices. That's what I love about the visual workplace. It's a tangible expression of the principles. So the last time we discussed the foundational principles behind problem solving in general, problem solving as a form, as an intervention, the heart of the process, and the heart of that process is cause, cause, C-A-U-S-E, cause, and the hard line distinction that we make between good cause and bad cause. Because inevitably, good cause leads to good effects, good outcomes. Bad cause leads to bad effects, bad outcomes. It's a very simple, simplistic kindergarten formula, I know, but you bear that in mind as you do problem solving, and you will become much more powerful in the use of the form, because that's the only way we can achieve the outcome of problem solving, that promise, solutions that solve and solutions that last, solutions that we can build on, because remember, what we're doing in problem solving is really creating new standards. We're creating new standards by ferreting out bad cause and supporting and amplifying good cause. So this time we're going to add the interactive piece. People as cause finders, people as cause makers, solution makers. I'm calling it visual problem solving and it's people grabbing focus because I want you to know that as uh, all of the methodologies, at least that I've formulated around the visual workplace, are eye-driven, so is visual problem-solving. But in a particular way, we need a very strong project manager to hold the focus and steer the boat to the horizon, in this case, to long-lasting solutions. And they will be multivariate solutions. I don't want to use high-flown language. I hated statistics when I took it. I really didn't understand it, but I still needed a degree in it in order to get my doctorate. But I want to personalize the importance of that project manager called the, um, the, the facilitator keeping an eye on the horizon and driving towards solutions that last. And he needs people to be involved, very, very deeply involved. So, you know, I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to, uh, Stay away from the whole comparison between A3 and this particular form. Maybe you figured out a way to use A3 to go after chronic costly problems. It is a very, very good form for a kind of immediate solution. And we need that on our shop floor. We cannot wait for the elegance and subtlety and power of complete problem solving. Some little boats are drowning. You know, they're going down. And it's very, very helpful. It gets a lot of people involved in a different way. So we're not trying to compare the two in terms of competition, but rather to know that I believe you need both. The adaptation that I'm using for this is work that I did in the 1980s with Ryuji Fukuda. When he made um, an amplification, a kind of um, um, an adaptation of Ishikawa's fishbone diagram... He added cards to it, and then he gave it to me, and he was very successful. He gave it to me and asked me to go further, and I spent eight or nine years dwelling on this stuff, and remember, you may remember from the last show, Fukuda gave me this incredible definition of cause. He did it by defining in his mind what a standard is. He called it a standard or a reliable method. And he said a reliable method in other well, you'll hear it, a reliable method is made up of only those elements which when not followed result in a predictable defect or waste. It is an incredibly brilliant, I don't even dazzling is perhaps the word, dazzling definition. A reliable method is made up of Only those elements which, when not followed, result in a defect or waste that you can predict because it wasn't followed. If you pull out that variable called a cause, if you pull out that cause, you know the cake is going to flop. You have a recipe, nice pineapple upside-down cake. You pull out the eggs, your cake is going to flop. You don't beat them based on the SOP, beat them enough, your cake is going to flop. You put in too much sugar, your cake is going to flop. You know these things. You know these things. <laughs> I'm remembering something. I, I have to make sure to not deviate too much. But I'll tell you a story about my father. My father was a really grumpy old man. He went to the Russian Revolution in 1917. So you know he's ancient. Well, he actually so ancient that now he has passed away. But he was a chef. He stowed away in uh, around 1920-22 20, because his brother was blown up at the printing press, who was his brother was printing anti-fascist literature in Italy. And so my my father comes in one morning. He sees his his brother has been blown away, and he jumps on the next ship ship to the United States. You know, this is talk about cowboys. He and he stows away, and he ends up in New Orleans, and he. uh <laughs> He learns he, – he becomes a dishwasher and he learns how to speak English by going home every night and copying. He had one copy of Life magazine, if you even remember Life magazine, and he used to copy it every not, night, not knowing what he was writing. But he would do that every night, every night, every night, copy the articles, mimic the the, uh, the language, and slowly he began to speak English. And actually, he, he spoke an incredible English uh, an English that I attain to even to this day. And uh, and he moved up from dishwasher to salad boy to making desserts to being a chef. And he got very, very good at being a chef. In fact, he be- he was the pastry chef for what was called in New York the International 400, which was the best 400 families in the world. And he was very exacting. He taught me how to how to make Thanksgiving dinner when I was eight. And I used to make full Thanksgiving dinners. I might have been nine. Until I finally ran away when I was um, 19 and went to college. <laughs> but I used to do, you know, turkey and five pies. Even when I was 11 and 12, under my father's exacting eye and his hand. He was very free with his hands. They believed in corporal punishment for children in Europe. Believe me, you. Believe you, me. <laughs> anyway, when my father was, 17, was, was 79, I'm working in Indiana and he is, uh, I get a phone call. I am far away from my father, almost well, 1,500 miles away. I think I'm safe, right? I get this phone call from my father, and he says, sis, he would call me, sis, sis, I'm 35 cents away. And I'm thinking, what does that mean? And I realized he spent 35 cents to call me and that he was pretty darn close. He was coming to see me unannounced. And, of course, I go into a tailspin, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do with my father? He's so exacting. Anyway, he came and visited me, and I kind of had this little itinerary. And he – I'm getting back to standard now. Believe me. I love this – what happened next. So I take him to my favorite restaurant, which, by the way, was run by my friends. They were excellent gourmet chefs. And what does he order? We're there for breakfast. The one thing that I don't want him – to order which is a croissant because he's an expert in croissants and we order the croissant in the Midwest in Indiana and I'm waiting for the inevitable and he says with he takes a bite you know he uses knife and fork takes a bite of the croissant and he says call the waitress and I'm thinking oh no this is beginning now so I call I call um, this lovely woman Karen over Hey, Karen, my dad, my pop, I never called him dad. My pop has something to say to you. And he says, he picks up the plate. He doesn't even look at her and he puts the plate in her kind of her proximity and says, tell the chef, chef, these aren't chefs. These are friends. Tell the chef he the butter, that the marble wasn't cold enough. Tell the chef that the marble wasn't cold enough. We look at each other, Karen and I, and we think, oh, crap. <laughs> What's going to happen now? So she said, oh, yes, thank you, sir. And I said, you know, I waited my little count six, seven seconds. And I said, okay, pop, what's going on here? And he said, don't you understand? And, of course, I knew whenever my father said, don't you understand, that I would never understand. He said, unless the marble is cold enough, the butter melts too soon when you're making croissant, when you're doing the mille which is a thousand layers of of pastry. The butter melts too soon, and you get... Uh, you get grease, you get grease, and he <laughs> took his thumb, and you get grease, you get grease on the on the roof of your mouth. And every time I think of Rakuta's definition, I think of my father finding the one isolated variable, the one cause that created grease, grease on the roof of his mouth. <laughs> a standard is made up of only those elements which, when not followed, result in a predictable defect or waste. That one element, the marble wasn't cold enough to hold the butter cold enough to be able to slip uh, through the dough and, and be placed in the oven. And that was what was wrong. That's what created the defect, which was a greasy croissant. So when we're talking about problem solving, we have to be talking about creating better standards. That's the elegance of it. And that's the long-term benefit of illuminating cause. Creating a great metric that illuminates cause that you can segment into knowable parts. I don't want to sound geeky to you, but this is the pleasure of problem solving. To go into it with this kind of incision, you know, to look for these. So we we segregate. Cause, If we're measuring defects, we segregate the number into maybe product type, model A, we had four defects related to model A, five model B, one for model R, or we segment by cause. We look at the kind of defect, not exactly by cause, but maybe by it's um, a misshapen part or is it a cosmetic scratch, we count that, or we segment by workstation or by person if the trust is high we answer the question, what's in that number? We don't just put a dot in the graph, but we explode it. So we can see, so we can illuminate cause. So this is what we set up on this format that we call either CDEC, cause and effect diagram with the addition of cards, or my version of it, which is called scoreboarding, which is, I think, a little bit, has a little bit more space in it and a little bit, a little bit more flexibility. And then we invite people. So I'm going to set up the diagram in your mind so you can see this. And um, we're talking about a board that's probably three by four feet or five by seven. But it's a big, big space to enable us to manipulate these variables and understand what the heck is going on because there's no such thing as a silver bullet. There's no single cause. There are so few organizations Where silver bullets have any relevance, you have to be, you know, amongst the top 10 companies of the world to have that level of control. All of it is pretty much soup. So we're going to continue this after the break. Thank you very much. I hope that you're enjoying our conversation today.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace Work That Makes Sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1 866 472 5790. That's toll free 1 866 472 5790 or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program.
1: Hi, this is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and you are joining us. If you're just joining us, you're joining us at the Visual Workplace, and today we are talking about visual problem-solving, the second piece. In the last show, we talked about the... um, The whole idea of problem solving that's really standard making in this show, we're going into how do you make a new standard by creating problem solving, by going through the process of problem solving. A moment ago, we were talking about the metric a little bit again, about metrics that drive, metrics that drive us down the causal chain, metrics that illuminate. They tell us these metrics at the beginning – will tell us the history of the problem. And that's usually in KPIs. It's usually done in the voice of your boss. You know, we've had 9% defect increase in the last three months or the last month. So you've got that part, and it's over there on the left. Over on the right, the far right, where the future is, the far horizon, you have these metrics that drive. And they're going to tell you how the problem condition is behaving while you're working on a solution. And these metrics that illuminate, they're like a vector force. They have force and direction. Kabam. They illuminate. So we go after them. And we, go, we hunt down causes and the way that we <laughs> one of the things is we hunt down causes and either put them out of their misery or we reform them into upstanding citizens and contributors <laughs> right i mean i get involved here <laughs> with this and the and what we want to do is bring people i mean i enjoy it and i'm thinking other people enjoy it too and they do so we make the diagram, this board, open to bring people powerfully into the process. And their role is pivotal. They are the cause finders and then the cause changers. So we invite people in, people who either receive the problem, cause the problem, or have the technical expertise to uh, address the problem, help it along. Everyone sits around this board, facing it with the historic measure on the left, the past, the driving measure on the right, the future, segmented into meaningful chunks. And in the middle is a great space that has a kind of upright structure to it. It's got lines going up and down, maybe. It's called spines. It's the fishbone, but not slanted. And each of these spines has a card. I use pink cards, a pink card. That focuses us on a particular area. Instead of staying within the man, material, machine, method thing, it makes it more local. The voice is local. It'll be like the CNC-7 for machine. Or it'll be like people will be purchasing and maybe assemblers and maybe, um, maybe engineering. Okay. It can be more granular than that. And we sometimes ask guests in. There's going to be a core group who stay with the problem and there's going to be people who come in as guests. So these people who come and sit around the table to begin with, their first job is to describe the problem but in detail. And we do this through sticky notes, through cards. And they're usually of a color. Let's say yellow. So that we have a tangible, portable uh, information consistent with the principles of visuality we have um, uh, segmented information we ask people to describe their experience of the problem how does the problem behave tell us what you notice oh well this oh well that and we stay away from any thought of solutions this is the brainstorming piece but it isn't brainstorming for solutions it's brainstorming for a very dense description of cause Everyone writes up these little yellow posties or sticky notes or postettes. What are they called? Yeah, postettes. Little yellow cards, cause and effect diagram with the addition of cards. You can call them fact cards or cause cards. Either will do. The project manager who's standing up there as a facilitator, almost as a traffic uh, traffic cop, is posting the cards, usually with an assistant because the project manager st- Project manager stays connected with the people, eye contact, and and hands off these cards to someone standing right behind him to put on the right spines. There's a few rules. Each author, each card author, reads their own card aloud. They read they read what's written. They don't hold a card and then say something else. They read what's on the card because that's precious information, and we want that to be. Um, uh, archived on the on the on the board itself, so we can contemplate it. We can use that as a base as we move towards solutions. And we're not at solutions yet. We're at the first part, collecting cause. Repeats are not thrown away, but they're posted as well. They're seen for the value that they truly have, which is repeats indicate a common understanding, a common conversation, a common sense of urgency, and they'll be in balances in the in the chart where somebody will understand one thing and there'll be only one card and you'll understand no one else has caught that. So you'll see this visually on the board. You'll get a kind of distribution just based on the yellow cards. And the yellow cards are placed to the left of the spine. There's a little bar that cuts across them. And people can raise questions as well at this stage. They raise questions and those questions, how come Such and such happens every day between 9 and 11.30. That's going to be a question. We are missing cause there, but I'm noting it with my question. Why is it that on Thursdays this occurs but no other day? What's going on with that machine? See, we're seeking facts. We're seeking information. And so these questions go on as well. And so we see this deep description of the problem when the yellows are up. We begin to know our our enemy. That's the first part. And we do that for an hour. We do it round robin or we do it. And you know what? Here's another thing I want to say. You always make sure that you know the quality of literacy, the level of literacy in the people who are attending. If they either have English as a second language or you know that they're, they're not fully literate, you always. You take the step of saying, okay, I want you guys to buddy up. Some of you I know don't like to write. So I want you to buddy up and find somebody who does like to write because I don't want any excuses about I don't like to write and therefore I'm not going to do cards. That other person will act as your scribe, okay? And then you'll pay back the favor in some way, in some unspeakable way (laughs) that you guys can figure out later. (laughs) I hope you know that I'm joking. We don't know each other well enough for you to know me well enough to know that I sometimes my jokes are misunderstood. Maybe that has happened already. But that was, you know, if if I'm laughing, I think I've made a joke. Most of the time people are looking at me nonplussed. What? (laughs) So you do this thick description of the problem. And this is, you know, on many, multi, multi multi-levels. Deep design of experiment questions and facts, and also, where's the broom? <laughs> and you avoid improvement ideas. And then you take a break. The break may be see you tomorrow. You take a break and you start with generating improvement ideas. You generate solutions and you use another color. I use blue. Yellow for fact cards or cause cards, blue for improvement or solution cards, suggestion cards. So we can see that distinction. And people do the same thing. You can either direct them to a spine and say, focus on this spine and give me all of your improvement ideas related to the yellow cards you see here. And come on up and if you can't see them from where you're seated, come come on up, write blue cards. Or you can just say, and you usually do this at the beginning, the first go round. you say, look, I want your improvement ideas on anything you see on the board or even if there isn't a yellow card to connect it to, to match it up with, you got an improvement idea. We'll figure out where it fits. And you open the gate very wide because you want people to participate with the minimum amount of barriers and requirement and, again, scribe for each other. There's a lot to be said about how these sessions work. They're very dynamic, and the project manager becomes very skilled at allowing people to uh, listen and, uh, and write and uh, get involved and keeping the room in balance, but yet keep it deeply, deeply focused. There's a lot of silence during these sessions. Silence as people go travel into their memory and travel into the problem or into possible solutions. Silence is required. It'll feel like a party because the flow is very deep, but there's a lot of silence. It's a flow in silence. It's very beautiful sessions. And so you generate your blue cards. You generate improvements. Your idea of improvements. And you don't say yes to anything yet. You just get it richly in place. Richly in place. Now what happens usually at this point, and this is just as important. In the process, we're up to step nine. I think there are 12 Steps. I, I'm thinking about that because sometimes I had 11, sometimes I had 14. But I'm pretty sure we're, around, we're at 9 now. We end the session. Maybe we were able to do the yellow and the blue cards. We end the session and people go away. They come back the next and They're going to be coming back the next time. Or a core group is. And what does the project manager do? Before the next session, usually with a buddy, he'll take all He'll take all the cards off of the board, all of them, and lay them down on a big table and reorganize them. I call it digesting the cards. Reorganize them so that he understands what's in the cards. He reexamines the cards. This is his homework. And he repositions them on the board in a way that makes sense related to everything that's on there. So he cleans it up and he illuminates the next area of exploration. That is his job. If he just lets things sit there and people just kind of come back and resume, there's no benefit in that. There's no platform. There's just the kind of soup that's on the, on the board. And remember, while all of this is happening, the metric is still demonstrating the behavior of the problem. The metric on the right, the new metric, the driving metric. Nothing has changed yet. Sometimes you get a little halo effect. Okay? So this project leader re-examination is critical. And it shows also to him where the group is stuck, where it's lying to itself, where it has great strength, and where it needs to go next. This is like a, a coach looking at a gymnast. I think I've given you this analogy before. When a coach decides to take on a gymnast, he sees what she can do well and what she can't do well, and then when he begins to work with her, he says, okay, you can do the horse well, the parallel bars well, and you're not going to be doing them again. You're going to focus on the beam, and you're going to focus on something else that I don't even know the name of. He goes where the strength isn't, or he may choose to go where the strength is, but that's the nature of this project leader. Very intelligent involvement. So, We'll finish this up after the break. I hope you find this interesting and useful, even for your problem-solving process, whatever you're using now. We have the flexibility of cards, we have the visibility of the big board, and we have the drive. Okay? Talk to you in a minute.
0: We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how... Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com.
1: Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN.
0: Back to the program.
1: Hi. Hi, it's Gwendolyn. <laughs> I love this stuff. I really do. We're here at the Visual Workplace. Sounds like a little corner coffee shop. Soda show, soda place. And we are today um, indulging in visual problem solving. Last time we were talking about what is problem solving that's really about standard making and this time we're getting into how do you deconstruct the problem and in a moment reconstruct it into a better standard because each of the so I'm going to continue each of those cause cards and each of those improvement ideas those blue cards are a component of the standard that isn't working or the standard the new standard that's evolving And so between sessions, the project leader reexamines his or her cards, has a buddy there, works it out, gets it all kind of relayed out, puts it back on the board. And usually these boards are, uh, you know, they can be packing cardboard. They're hinged in the middle so that you can fold it up and all the cards stay in place. You use a little bit of removable uh, tape, transparent tape to hold the cards in place. And you walk off to your next session, big old board. You lean it up against a wall. There's a little, there's something to hold it up, two flip charts or whatever. And you begin to say, okay, I've digested the board. It looks like this. And then you will bring in, if you're project leader, you usually bring in, let's focus on, we're going to focus on this area and that area. Okay. And I want us to drive deep. Let's go for solutions. And so, the project leader is in a leadership position, driving towards the horizon. The facilitation is much more powerful than just how do I stay in touch with the group and keep everybody you know, keep the keep the gate open and make sure that the human process is high. This is driving towards a solution, driving towards a new standard. And that's what happens next. So they work on that and they might work on the blue cards, the solution cards very, very deeply until they have Enough of a description to understand how to get a solution in place. But also, the project leader may say, we need to go more deeply into the yellows, into the factor, the cause cause cards on this spine. Because we're missing something here. This is an important variable. So I want you to go deeper. If you need to go out on the floor to do some examination, blah, blah, blah. It's his choice. The project leader is driving. And people get a chance to run the race with him, with her, because they're all after the same, a great new standard operating procedure, a lot of detail. And so we begin with solutions, let's say we solutions, and the solutions go through a process that says, we're going to try out this solution, there's always a target date and somebody who owns that solution who's going to shepherd it through, even though he may have lots and lots of helpers. There'll be a target date, and somebody wants to own it, and then it it starts on another little sub-pathway, which is started, halfway through, finished, or halfway through, stalled, and that's also put up on a board so it's visible. The problem has to be worth this level of examination, and if it is, You will get solutions at last. My favorite example is Eric, who worked uh, as the VP of engineering at Nauterbaum Trailers. I think his name was Eric. It might have been Hank, but I'm pretty sure it was Eric. And he and his department were issuing, issuing 78 engineering change notices per week to the shop floor. The shop floor was ready to slash his tires. And he didn't know what to do about it because it was such a complex problem. And he knew it. He didn't know where to begin. And as luck would have it, I had just taught the um, improvement team how to do the scoreboarding process. And and we were looking for a candidate. And everyone said, Eric. (laughs) And so Frank taught Eric how to do the process. Frank, I taught. Frank, Frank taught. Eric, I watched. And Eric began to take a project, take on this project that resulted in three months later, two per week on average. So he got control of his corner of the world, right? And he always had this dynamic diagram that enabled him to see exactly where he was, what he was working on, what was working, what was still uh, challenging, what was stalled, and he was able to move through a lot of easy initial solutions. And then the more complex ones, he would just stay doggedly because the board held it. You see, that's the visual part of visual problem solving. It isn't just that you can see it, that it's on a piece of paper, you can see it. But it's dynamic and you can see it change. You can see it live. That's the visual part. It drives. And the visual metrics keep chugging along, along, revealing Sometimes yelling, screaming, sometimes whispering, always, always revealing the presence of good cause and of bad. Increasingly good causes because the metric gets better. And when a bad cause happens, we create, we develop the skill of identifying it because we understand the components of the procedure of what we call the SOP, only those elements which were not followed result in a predictable defect or waste. And since I'm going to India in just two and a half days, I'm so excited and I have so much to do before then. I want to give you an example of where this takes the intelligent organization. So, my great friend in India who worked for Crompton Greaves, uh, his name is Mohan, S. Mohan. He I taught him, he taught his group. He called them his boys. He his. Uh, he was an engineering uh, uh, director. And he taught the other engineers, his boys, this technique. And he went further than I could ever imagine. I thought that I went pretty far. <laughs> but he went further. He said, when you create the improved standard, as a final step, and by the way, the final step in my process is then to make sure you anchor those elements which when not followed result in a predictable defect or waste into the landscape of work through visual devices. So the final step in the process is, anch- well, the final step is to keep going, but the next to the final step is to anchor your solutions visually, to find a way for them to inhabit the workspace. But his final step, which he brilliantly added, was recreate the problem. I will not know that this problem is solved until you can recreate the problem. This is a tremendous amount of control and skill and expectation. This was his requirement, his requirement for his boys. They had a great time. It gave them such a sense of victory and of being able to command the physical universe not quite on the level of Star Trek, but for us humans, it was really good enough. Us Earth-bound humans, it was very, very delicious. Remember, I began in the first problem-solving show, I think one show ago, by talking to you about Sheldahl's definition of a problem This was in 1987. They published this and had this on their walls. This was the adopted definition of a problem for this plant. And they had been using this process for three or four years. And it gave them a tremendous sense of control and ability. And their definition, if you remember, was this. A problem is anything that inconveniences anyone downstream. A problem is anything that inconveniences anyone downstream. Hmm? When we talk about only those elements which were not followed, the problem becomes inconvenience. When not followed, predict, um, results in a predictable defect or inconvenience. <laughs> it's pretty cool, isn't it? I'd love for you to have the pleasure of this kind of an experience, so that you know the depth and the scope of your intelligence, of your operational acumen, of the acuteness that you can bring to this process that you may find overwhelming right now. But I will tell you this piece is under visual leadership. And if your executive doesn't allow it and provide you time to do it, don't even bother. That's why this is an executive component. Because deep problem solving can't happen casually. It's a commitment. Oh, my gosh. When Fukuda did this, he had 40 or 50, 60 of these boards running at once, all contributing to a huge corporate intent. He did this with Sony in the 1980s when they were going after the automobile sound system market, and they were up against boss, Bose. Bosey, I think it's called Bosey. And they won. They also won the Queen's Award for that year for Outstanding Improvement, um, improvement Process for a company in, in the U.K., right? right? It's the pleasure of the investigation. And visual makes it hold still long enough for you to enjoy it and to be able to pursue it and to drive it and illuminate it. That's what visual problem solving is about. And I wish that for you. I hope you have that experience soon. It lives very vividly in my memories. And I love doing it again and again and again. So I want to thank you very much. We're going to move on to the last part of Doorway Number 4, the hoshin part in the next show about the doorway. I think that might be the very next show about the Doorway 4. I've had a great time with you today. I hope you have too. And I look forward to the next time. You bet I do. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and I'm signing off.
0: We appreciate your joining us this week for The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense. Please tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific, featuring your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galesworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks again for listening.